Well, today we are going to continue considering and finish considering the Song of the Ages. So it took us four pieces here, but part four is the climax on to victory. So anybody need victory in your life? Yes, I long for victory. So for those of you who may not have heard one or all of the previous pieces, let me just give you a quick rundown so that you're kind of up to pace. We're all on the same page, and then we'll explore our, our fourth part. So it turns out the Song of Solomon is the Song of Songs. That's why I've called this the Song of the Ages. It's the greatest song. And we were exploring why is it called the Song of Songs? What makes it so particularly great? How is it relevant to our day? And we noted that in Revelation, that those who are finally victorious, they sing a song as well, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We also noted that in Revelation, that it goes over the history of the church in broad strokes in Revelation 12. So we considered the possibility that the Song of Songs may do the same thing. And it turns out, if you look closely at the words there, which we've done in prior talks, that in the opening chapters, the first two chapters, it deals largely with the church in the wilderness. And when we think of the church in the wilderness, there's usually a particular people we focus on. What group of people does God seem to focus our attention on? Well, okay, Israel for, for sure, but specifically after the cross for many centuries. Yeah, the 1260 years, the Waldensians, that's right. And so we noted that some uh, details that are mentioned in those opening chapters that do indeed correspond to the experience of the Waldenses. It mentions the vineyards and shepherds, which is exactly the kind of life they lived. It refers to the church of the valleys. It refers to mountains that they lived in. And if you read um, what is it, Wiley's History of Protestantism, he gives very vivid geographic descriptions of the area for those of us who have not been there. And this is exactly what he pictures. And it even mentions the clefts of the rock, uh, the hiding place of the cliff. And indeed, uh, as the papacy would come at times and persecute the Waldensians, there were indeed uh, cliffs. There were caves that they would go to that they knew about where they would hide and from which they could also launch assaults that were hard to um, respond to on the part of the papacy. And then, in, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 2, we come to a point where the Waldenses, though we admire them for their faithfulness, we're also told that after many centuries of persecution, they came to a point where they tired of just persecution after persecution, and their courage and zeal began to wane. And we read a statement from Echolampadius, who was in the early days of the Reformation, and he gave a very scathing rebuke to them. But praise the Lord, the Waldensians, rather than uh, just answering back strongly and saying, well, who do you think you are? We pre-existed the Reformation. Instead, they took it to heart, they reformed, and they began that, that upward climb again. And the verse here that, that uh, corresponds to that it says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. If you study foxes in scripture, you'll find out it's those who have, um, they have a position of teaching, but they teach falsely. 
So they rooted out those who were teaching falsely, which would primarily be the um, Catholic priests that they had accepted for a season to be their religious leaders. They no longer acknowledged them as the ministers of Christ. And then when we got to chapter 3, we noticed that, oh, the bride is said to be looking, but she cannot find her beloved. And it was the great disappointment. The people had expected Jesus to come, but where was he? They, they knew they'd had the, the right date. They had settled that. They had the right event. They knew it was the cleansing of the sanctuary, but they didn't understand that it meant he would be doing a work in heaven. They thought he was coming to earth. But a short time later, the, the problem was resolved. So yes, there it is. I sought him, but I found him not. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And then the solution to the disappointment came a short time later, it says in Song of Solomon. Historically, we know it came the very day afterward. We read a, a statement recorded by J.N. Loughborough where he records what is to us a well-known story about the cornfield and Hiram Edson there and how it was revealed to him that the answer lies in the sanctuary. This is where he went to cleanse. And so it says here a little while, verse 4, I found him whom my soul loveth. This would be Jesus. And by the way, it refers to Solomon here, but Solomon is the son of David. Jesus is the ultimate son of David. So no contradiction. And then when she, that is God's people, when they find Jesus, they find the answer to this great disappointment, it says that they, or collectively the, the bride, brought him into the chamber of her that conceived me. And we saw how the chamber refers to the most holy place in the sanctuary, precisely where Jesus moved in 1844. And then in verse 11 of the same chapter, it refers to King Solomon on the day of his wedding. But see, October 22nd, 1844, when the judgment began is also when he began the wedding. In Scripture, it teaches that uh, at the spiritual level, the wedding and the judgment are one and the same. If you'd like to check into that, I encourage you to look at Matthew 22, the first 14 verses, and Matthew 25, the first 13 verses. Those two parables are very instructive on that point. Following this, we see how Solomon, representing Jesus here, he admires his bride for many verses and gives a lot of details, which we didn't really explore in great detail, but he gives a lot of details there about how beautiful he is, she is, excuse me. And then in the very last verse, verse 16 of chapter 4, there's this strange request made that the wind might blow on the bride. And so we explored last time, what, what might that be? Well, it turns out that the wind, we've seen, excuse me, some scriptures that show us that this would be the Holy Spirit. The finishing touch needed for the bride, after 1844, after she's been growing, the Holy Spirit is needed to finish that work of developing one's character. The Holy Spirit in Scripture is also referred to as the latter rain that brings full maturity. Uh, here's one helpful statement here to that effect from Testimonies to Ministers, page 506. It tells us here that the latter rain ripening earth's harvest, represents the spiritual grace that prepares the church for the coming of the Son of Man. But unless the former rain has fallen, there will be no life. The green blade will not spring up. 
Unless the early showers have done their work, the latter rain can bring no seed to perfection. But if we have allowed the early rain to fall, then yes, the latter rain is precisely what will bring it to perfection. We can't sit back and say, okay, Jesus just magically changed my character. But if we've been cooperating with him, then yes, his spirit will be precisely the agency that finishes the development. So what we had is a picture of Jesus admiring his bride before 1888. He describes the bride, if we were to look at the details, with sanctuary language. Then in chapter 5, we had uh, Solomon, Jesus, standing at the door there, wanting to come in. And what we saw there was the bride and her response to the 1888 message. It says there in those eight verses, beginning chapter 5, that the watchmen, look at that in Scripture, it's the church leaders, they struck the bride. Rather curious response as she's once again looking for Jesus. And it says that they remove her wrapper. That's how they would put it in modern translations. Seems to be her outer garment. This is very interesting because if you've studied the 1888 message, you know that the main key there was the righteousness of Christ. And one of the ways to represent that in Scripture is as the robe of Christ's righteousness. So it would seem that the robe of righteousness was set aside for a time. Now, as we continue on, it flips. We come to a point where the bride seems to have responded now to the 1888 message. She is allowing the Holy Spirit to come in, completely transform her. And just as Jesus had been admiring her beforehand, but saw she needed the Holy Spirit, now she, in turn, is admiring Jesus at some unspecified date after 1888. She describes Jesus, uh, he had described her with sanctuary language. She describes him with high priest language. He's the high priest of the sanctuary. And it's very similar to a description found in Daniel chapter 10. And this is where we're going to pick it up. On the next slide, I would like to show you a comparison of how Jesus is pictured in Daniel chapter 10 as the high priest. And we're going to compare it with the description that the bride here gives in Song of Solomon 10 through 16. We'll look at just a few points to see the similarities here. So here's our little comparison, our chart here. And, okay, it's a little smaller than I might like, but I think you can make it out. First of all, in Daniel 10, this is where, this is in the last segment of the book of Daniel, Jesus gets, excuse me, Daniel gets a picture of Jesus and he sees him in a way that is awe-inspiring. And it says, among other things, that he was girded, he, Jesus, was girded with fine gold of Uphaz. In Song of Solomon, it says that Solomon, Jesus' head, is like fine gold of Paz. Now, it may not be quite as obvious in English. In Hebrew, it's pretty clear that Uphaz and Paz are just variant spellings. It's the same thing. Also, in Daniel 10, it has the strange statement that Jesus' body is like the barrel. Now, don't make a mistake here. This is not a barrel like you'd put liquid in. This is a gemstone. One of the gemstones that you'll find on the breastplate of the high priest. In Song of Solomon, we have Jesus pictured with hands 
like gold that are inset or inlaid with beryl. Daniel 10 describes Jesus' face as like lightning. Song of Solomon 5 refers to his face, not as lightning, but it does mention his face being like Lebanon, which Lebanon means white, apparently brilliantly white. Daniel 10 describes Jesus' eyes as like lamps of fire. Well, Song of Solomon refers to his eyes like the eyes of doves. And at first I thought, well, that's kind of curious. They both mention the eyes, but it doesn't seem to be perhaps the clearest connection. But it occurred to me, fire represents the Holy Spirit. So do doves. Finally, it mentions in Daniel 10, it mentions Jesus' arms and feet as being like polished brass. Song of Solomon 5, not quite the same, but similar. It refers to his legs like rods or columns, your version may say, set upon a base of, and there's that word again, paws or uphaws. The point is, in Daniel 10, what we have there, if you were to focus on Daniel, which is not our intent today, it pictures Jesus as the high priest as he would be dressed for the Day of Atonement. Here in Song of Solomon, it's a love story. It's about Jesus getting married. This is Jesus attired as he would be for his wedding. But again, wedding, Day of Atonement or Judgment, same thing. By the way, it makes sense. Day of Atonement means Day of At-One-Ment, right? We usually think of it as judgment time, and it is. But it's the day where we become one with Jesus. And of course, you become one with your spouse when you get married. So it's a perfect harmonization of the scriptures. So I thought I would just uh, summarize it here on the slide. Daniel 10 shows the high priest costume, pointing to the Day of Atonement, or judgment. And likewise, Song of Solomon 5, verses 10 through 16, pictures Jesus in the bridegroom costume for his wedding. Now, as we continue on, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, Jesus once again admires his bride. Because now, yes, she was beautiful before, but needed the Holy Spirit. We've come to a point where the Holy Spirit has been working mightily in her life, and he recognizes that, yes, this is what we have been waiting for. We, the, 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 the beings in heaven. He makes an odd, I think if we're honest, an odd assertion here. He says in verse 5 that your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, and I, I'm not trying to be comical here, but I am just saying if somebody were to say that to you, most of us would pause. I mean, you just wouldn't know what to make of it, right? And it used to be when I read Song of well, there's much in Song of Solomon that's still a mystery to me. But it used to be when I got to that, I thought, well, I'm just going to try to get the big picture. I don't understand this verse. I'm just moving on. But it turns out, as I've studied the Bible and gone through it again and again, and I just meditate on what this part means and this part, certain dots begin to get connected. And I don't remember precisely when, but fairly recently, I made a connection and I thought, wait a minute, of course. You see, when you recognize that the book of Song of Solomon is about Jesus' wedding with his church in the sanctuary setting, if you attune your mind to that, your mind begins to think, okay, have I seen flock of goats, hair in connection with the sanctuary? 
Well, I think one of the, the clearest places, in the last 16 chapters of Exodus, it gives great detail on all the, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the, the elements, the materials used to build Moses' sanctuary. And in Exodus 26, 7, it tells us that one of the materials, there's four layers that go on top of Moses' tabernacle, and the second one is goat's hair, and it specifically says it is a covering. Okay? And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 15, it refers to uh, a woman, but if you study closely, it even appears to be more specific, a wife. It says that her long hair is given as a covering. Now, why do I share those texts there? Well, Song of Solomon is about Jesus and his bride, his wife. It talks about his wife's hair and goats. But we know that Jesus, in one sense, his bride is the church, his people. But in another, Revelation 21, it says, let me show you the city, which is the sanctuary. That, too, is his bride. It's Revelation 21. So we can connect Song of Solomon with a sanctuary description where goats here is given as a tabernacle covering, a covering for his wife, the structure. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, a reference to a woman, apparently a wife, where her hair is given as a covering. Harmonization. So anyways, hopefully that adds some light to that. In verse 10, we have what was our opening text. And this is so exciting. Remember, by this point, the church has submitted, she has received the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is recognizing that she is nearing completion. And it says here, Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners? And a description of what this means, and to confirm that we're following the timeline correctly and not just being fanciful and making it say what we'd like it to say, there is a statement in the Great Controversy, page 425, and it says this, Those who are living upon the earth, when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above. By the way, I think signs indicate that's really close, right? How the world could get much worse than it is right now, I don't know. They seem to be figuring out ways to make it go faster, but it can't last long at this rate. We are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Hmm. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. And while we read this, and we might be thinking, oh, I'm honest, I know there's work to be done. Okay. But thankfully, the one who does it is all-powerful. And can you see why Jesus is so excited? as he sees it coming to completion. If we look at it his way and be excited by what he can do rather than being anxious because of what we know we can't do, it might be helpful. It says, through the grace of God, his grace, not us, and their own diligent effort, cooperation, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the unjust investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people upon earth. This work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14, the three angels' message. Notice, 
when this work shall have been accomplished, it will come to a finishing point. The followers of Christ will be ready for his appearing. And then she brings texts of Scripture together to show us um, what these texts mean, that they're referring to this very accomplishment of the work. Referring to Malachi 3.4, she quotes, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. We will be the offering, and it will be accepted. Ephesians 5.27, Then the church which our Lord at his coming is to receive to himself will be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Flawless, right? Truly the whitest of white um, uh, wedding dresses, you might say. And finally, here it is, Song of Solomon 6.10, Then she will look forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. The church militant has arrived at church triumphant. She's filled with the Spirit. She is ready to meet Jesus. This is, this is an exciting point right here. But you'll notice, it's not the end of the book. Hmm. Once she has reached that point, her character is exactly what Jesus says, yep, that's it. Or not yep, but yes, that's it. In verse 12, there's this kind of odd statement. It says, or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadiv. Again, that's when I looked at it and thought, well, I don't know what that is. I'll just move past that and see if I can pick out something else. However, we can, we can figure this out. Modern translations will say, or ever I was aware, they'll, they'll translate that a little more clearly. Before I knew it, like really quickly, my soul appointed for me the chariots of Amenadive. Now, that still may not make a lot of sense. The key is, what does it mean when it says my soul? You might think that means, well, me, right? Well, it turns out in Song of Solomon, this is about Solomon and his bride coming together. Five times in the Song of Solomon, it talks about how him whom my soul loveth. Hmm, very close. And then in this verse here I put on the screen, in 5 verse 6, when the bride had tarried, she hadn't opened the door, but she finally did, oh no, he had gone. It says, my soul left me when he went down. It's like she lost herself when she lost Jesus. In other words, the idea here is, is that before I, the church, knew it, Jesus, my very soul, the one who has become one with me, appointed for me the chariots of Aminadiv. Hmm, chariots. When P Jesus took Elijah to heaven, what did he take him in? Chariot, that's right. When Jesus comes in Revelation 19 for his people, he and the hosts of heaven come on what? Uh, well... <laughs> Horses, white horses, right? Presumably with chariots to receive the bride to take her home. Okay. Now here's something fascinating. You might think, but what's all that Ami Nadiv? I mean, what's, what's that all about? Actually, that's explained in Scripture. Notice in Exodus 6.23, it says that Aaron, the high priest, took him like he took a wife named Elishavah, the daughter of Ami Nadav. You might think, uh, what? The point is, the high priest marries somebody that's called Ami, or the daughter, sorry, of Aminadiv. It refers to 
Um, here it is, yeah, the high priest married the daughter of Aminadab. So when we take that understanding and put it back in Song of Solomon, where it says, before I knew it, my soul, referring to the bride speaking of Jesus, appointed for me the chariots of Aminadib, it's Jesus saying, she's ready, get the horses, get the, the, uh, the chariots ready, we're coming for the bride. That's the idea. And uh, what Aminadib means is my people are noble. She's finally purified. She's ready to be part of divine royalty. Not that she becomes divine, but you know what I mean. She can be with Jesus there in the courts of heaven. And then this is fascinating here. There's a, there's a, it appears only once in the book of Solomon. But the bride is referred to by name. It says, return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon thee. Now is again one of those things I looked at and said, well, I don't know what a Shulamite is. I'll go on to another verse. However, I had the great joy of learning Hebrew. And when I learned Hebrew, I thought, ooh, this is exciting. So let me share. It turns out that Solomon in Hebrew is Shlomo, which I think is a little more fun to say. I like Shlomo. It's just a fun word. It rolls off the tongue. Now, in Hebrew, and in fact, a lot of languages, maybe all of them, the main idea of a word is carried in its consonants. So if you look at Shlomo, you see the sh, the l, and the m, right? Shlomo, okay. Look at Shulamite. Sh, l, m. Ignore the different vowels, right? The meaning is in the consonants. And then the eat ending just makes it feminine. It's the feminine form of Shlomo. Who's, who's he coming for? A bride who is just like him. She has his name. It says in Revelation that I will give you a new name. Right? I'm going to give you my new name. Well, the feminine form of it anyways, right? It's a perfect pair. <laughs> this makes sense. All right. A couple more verses and we're done. We're not doing every verse here. Just, just the highlights. But in chapter 7, verse 1, another curious statement. I mean, he's praising his bride, but Again, isn't it just a little odd if you thought in our world, wouldn't it seem a little strange if somebody came to you and said, how beautiful are your feet? I mean, quite honestly, a lot of times it's, it's really not an attractive part, right? Just being honest. But it says, how beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter? Now, at one point when I looked at that, I thought, oh, I bet I get it. I, it's probably something I like, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings, it says in Scripture. I had hoped it would say that, but I got to be honest, it doesn't say that. That might be related and commendable in the bride, but that's not what it's talking about. It actually doesn't refer to feet so much as footsteps. Here's a, a very literal translation. How beautiful are your footsteps in sandals, O noble daughter? Okay, now you think, how does that help anything? Here's how. What are footsteps in the Bible? I think this is a clear verse right here. Psalm 119, 133. Has established my footsteps according to your promise. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. Did you know God promises us, if we're willing, that he can get us to the point where dominion has no dominion over us? We'll be tempted till the very instant Jesus appears, but do we have to yield? No. If we submit to Jesus, why submit to sin? There you go. So that's the footsteps. He's saying, good. 
You're walking in my way now. You know, can two walk together except they be agreed, right? You're walking the same path. Now, is that how beautiful are your footsteps in sandals? Okay, now, is that significant or is it just kind of pointing out the obvious that she's wearing something? Oh, I think the sandals mean something. Take a look at this. Why sandals? Well, there was a time where the prophet Ezekiel described the experience of God's people. And as is so often the case in scripture, God's people were apostate. They were unfaithful, anything but a faithful bride. And in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, the Lord is speaking about his precious people. And he says, now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. I spread my skirt over thee, meaning the, the end of his garment, and I covered your nakedness. The book of Ruth, Ruth asked Boaz to spread the skirt of his garment over her. She's showing that she's willing to be married. That's what God's doing here. Yea, I swear unto thee, I entered into, I wouldn't say a covenant, I just entered into covenant with thee. What kind of covenant you suppose it is? When God enters into covenant with us. Marriage. That's what he's doing here. It's marriage. Saith the Lord God, and you became mine. Notice, I washed you with water. I thoroughly washed you with thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. And verse 10, here's the sandals. I clothed thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger skin. I girded thee about with fine linen. You might say, I thought you just said it had something to do with sandals. Well, it does. That whole word shod is Old English. If I have been shod, it means I have been shooed. Shoes have been put on me, but the specific kind of shoe is a sandal. So what it literally says is this, and you can check this in a lot of modern translations. Then I washed thee with water, and I provided you sandals of, not badger skin, seal skin. I girded you about with fine linen. This is why it's interesting. You see how there's linen there? And you see how there's sandals, yes, in association with getting married. But you see how it said seal skin there? Here's why it's interesting. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 347, referring to the building of the tabernacle and those different layers that were on top of it, it says this, the roof of the tabernacle was formed of four sets of curtains, the innermost of fine twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet, with cherubim of cunning work. The other three respectively were of goat's hair, ram's skins dyed red, and what's the last one? King James says badger skins. She corroborates what some of the modern translations say, seal skins. That's interesting. So arranged as to afford complete protection. The point is, innermost linen, outermost the seal skin for total protection. But that's what God provided his people when he married them in Ezekiel 16. Hmm. The sandals were those of seal skin. Here's a picture, just so you can visualize it. This is from the ESV Study Bible. I have a copy of it at my house. It has some great artwork. It's very helpful if you're trying to understand the sanctuary better. And you see it's a cutaway here, and you can see there's four layers there. Uh, it looks somewhat purple. It's kind of a blend of colors as the innermost one. That's the linen dyed various colors. Then there's the, uh, the goat's uh, hair we heard about. Then the reddish one would be the ram's skins dyed red. And the outermost would be this seal skin, I suppose, to waterproof it. 
The point is this. When Jesus perfects his bride's character, she is both cleansed and she is clothed like the sanctuary. Remember? And in 2,300 days, going to cleanse the sanctuary, going to cleanse God's people. It's going to be one and the same. So she will be like the sanctuary. And then you get to the very end of the book. And there's a question asked, who is this that comes up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? Well, it's the Shulamite, right? Leaning on Jesus. The funny thing is that earlier in the book, the same question had been, almost the same question had been asked. It said, who or probably better, what is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, his portable couch, or his litter, which is Solomon's. When Jesus came to start the wedding, there was this question about what is this movement here? What is this thing that he's on? It's the instrument, you might say, he was going to use where he'd begin to receive his bride. And at the end, the question comes, who is this now? It's the one he has received, his bride. Last verse, verse 6. I love this part. The bride speaks and says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now, we talk a lot as Adventists about um, well, we want to receive the seal of the living God, right? We, and where do we want to receive it? We don't know. Yeah, the forehead, okay. But notice here, she's not saying, oh, Lord, please, please seal me, seal me. She's saying, set me as a seal on your heart. And it's like, oh, that's a little different. It's not what we usually pray for. Let me show you something here. This is also from the ESV Bible. Somebody put this online, so I just put the web address there. But it's out of the ESV study Bible. This is the high priest's costume there. Now, when we talk about the heart, where, where, where do we, roughly speaking, where is our heart located? Okay, well, I got, okay, I got a couple of different answers here. But yeah, the, the one, the kind of the, maybe the obvious answer might be to, you know, somewhere roughly center of your chest, right? Okay. So if you go with that understanding, what part of this costume might apply to the heart then? Right, probably the breastplate, right? You might think, oh, that makes sense because the breastplate's got those 12 pretty gemstones and each had a name on them and, you know, keep me close to your heart. It seems like kind of a lovely picture, right? But I think there might be a better, more biblical understanding, and I think one of you was, was on to it. Notice this. In the Bible, I don't see any evidence that the word heart is used to refer to what we call the, the biological heart. But you do see this. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, Thou Solomon, perfect for the Song of Solomon, Thou Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart, with a willing what? Aha. Heart and mind in the Bible are used interchangeably. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. They're equivalent. With that understanding... When she says, set me as a seal on your heart, I don't think she's talking so much about this. She's talking about your mind, right? When you look back at that high priest costume, is there anything there that might better be associated with the mind? Yeah, probably that, that little miter up there, right? Take a look at this. 
Jeremiah 31, 33, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, evidently their mind, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. The covenant is God putting his law, his teaching, in our hearts, our mind. But notice, Exodus 28, 36 to 38, refers to the high priest custom and says this, for the high priest, you're to make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the engravings of a seal, it says signet, but it's the word seal, holiness to the Lord. You shall put it on a blue lace, the color of obedience, and it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, right? Where do we get sealed? In our foreheads, right? Mm. Interesting that the high priest, too, has a seal on his forehead. It says holiness to the Lord. Notice what it says about the Sabbath. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Except it says something a little different. If you read it literally, it's this. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holiness to the Lord. Sabbath is holiness to the Lord. Hmm. So the high priest has on his mitre a reference to the Sabbath. Why does that matter? Notice, a text we use all the time. Ezekiel 20, 12. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them, that makes them holy. The Sabbath is a key experience in uniting us with Jesus. He's a perfectly holy being, right? He's God. That's what he uses to fuse us, to make us one, that we can have a character like his. So when she says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, it's the Sabbath that's being referred to kind of obliquely there. It's what makes Christ and his bride one. Why do you think Christ had to reintroduce the Sabbath after 1844? He said, this is absolutely key to the wedding experience. Without that, we can't finish the work. Plenty of people have been saved without knowing it. But he says, to finish, to finish it, we have to have this in place. It goes on, it says, love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. This is the bride talking. She has an appreciation for what Christ has done as no other group of people in history have done. She realizes that, wait a minute, that's exactly what Jesus did, right? His love was so strong for us that he died, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said, nothing's going to get in the way of me reclaiming my willing people. I will die if need be. And there was a need. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Now, jealousy, we might think of it in earthly terms about somebody getting mad and, you know, my woman cheated on me and I'll beat you up and all this kind of foolishness in Hollywood. In the Bible, God is a jealous God, right? Idolatry makes him jealous. He says, no. Love is strong as death. Jealousy, synonymous with love, is cruel as the grave. He spent those three days in the grave there so that he could come back and he could one day redeem his bride. I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, Paul writes, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Jealousy is associated with marriage. God wants us married to him. 
And then that verse finishes by saying this, the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. That's kind of strange. Coals are kind of what are left over from a fire. You can start a fire from them. It turns out, here's how some other translations put it. Notice that the last part of the verse there, it says, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Hmm. Didn't say a vehement flame, it says the flame of the Lord. Uh, Young's literal translation, you may be familiar with that. Its burnings are burnings of fire, a flame of Yah, short for Yahweh. Hmm. My own translation, set me as the seal upon your heart as the seal upon your arm. She wants, see, the church is begging to be one with Christ. They treasure those Sabbath hours so that they can become one. They can be partakers of the divine nature. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is tenacious as the grave. And then finally, her, referring to love, referring to jealousy, they're both feminine in Hebrew. Her flashes are flashes of fire, the very blaze of Yahweh himself. This is the kind of love that the bride of Christ is going to come to have. She's going to realize the love of Jesus. She's going to appreciate it as Jesus appreciates true love. And if you're willing today, he's going to work that in you. Would, would you not want to have a love for Christ that's not just, no, oh, I love Jesus. Wouldn't you love for it to be like this, where it's so exciting. It's like the very blaze of Yahweh himself is just, just bursting forth from you. This is exactly what he's going to do for us. Of course, to develop that in us, we've got to go through his sufferings. We've got to, we've got to come like Paul and, and accept it and realize it's, it's actually a great privilege. But if you are new in your walk here, then I would invite you to consider that seal upon the heart. The Sabbath is not just, okay, it's a thing about a day, and I just don't quite get it. Does it really matter? Don't look at it that way. Look at it as this special treasure that can, in God's, the way he works, this will make your mind meld with his as it can another way. And if you are an Adventist of who knows how many years, but things have just kind of gotten, you know, I just go to church every Sabbath, and I show up to the occasional church business meeting or whatever, and it's just things aren't really on fire. Look at this statement here. Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, and ask, would you like that experience? Are you not having that? If things just kind of dried up, life has happened, and you've just gotten totally distracted from, from our mission? If you're in either camp, I would invite you, study the Song of Solomon. Look over the history of God's people. See how he's led them? See how it is a story of the sanctuary in which he saves his people, he brings them to the point where he says, yes, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I am coming for you. And we can live with Jesus forever. This, this is absolutely stunning. And we are going to be that, as it said in Song of Solomon 6.10, our, our opening verse today, we are going to be exactly like the, the church that is said to be fair as the sun, clear as the moon, and terrible as an army with banners. We're going to be a mighty army. And we're not going to overcome by fighting, right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of what? Strongholds of sin in our life, and we can be used to break them down in others. 
When people see nothing but love radiating from us, when all the world has turned totally selfish, which it's fast doing, and they're saying, Wait, you're willing to come by and help me? You don't have a dime. You've got nothing. What are you even going to offer? But you're willing to help me when everybody else is running off looking to save their own selves? Wow, that'll be a powerful army. That'll, that'll break down a lot of strongholds. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.